Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Even during this time, like I feel like I went along with a certain amount of things because I felt like if I just tell them he put his hand down my shirt, that's not enough. If I just tell them he touched my leg and invited me over to his house, that's not enough. Like I felt like sex had to happen. I felt like, you know, something had to happen to be believed. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Rebecca Britt. Rebecca was a bright light when she was a child. That light slowly faded in a home that constantly told her to shut up and sit down. She learned to be silent. She was silent when her brother introduced her to pot at 10, and she was also silent when her older brother's friend began leaving her notes at age 12. She felt special that someone would want to have a relationship with her. What she didn't realize was that he was grooming her. At age 12, she was raped. It was only discovered when she told her classmates about what felt like a grown-up love affair. The experience was jarring and confusing, but it also prepared her for the next year when a teacher began grooming her. When she finally came forward about his predatory behavior, she spent the next three years in depositions, and after the long process, he was found not guilty. Her painful experience had been for nothing. People whispered around school that she'd slept with a teacher. Her self-esteem was nothing, and that's when she began using heroin, sleeping with older men, and beginning an incredibly dark period of her life. Through all of it, she had a strange desire for justice. She became a social worker in an attempt to help others who felt as powerless as she did. All the while, heroin had found its way into her daily life, and she found herself nodding out during meetings. She was eventually arrested for possession of heroin. It scared her enough to stop her heroin use, but her trauma remained. Today, she hasn't used heroin in 10 years and uses her nonprofit to help children with complex trauma needs. This interview was awesome. Loved Rebecca, related so much to her story. We had some uncanny similarities. And I love that she talks about this feeling of being rejected and disgusting when people talk about the abuser, the the groomer being disgusting for being attracted to the girl. And what an interesting accidental trauma that is, because of course the adults are not trying to traumatize the survivor of this event. She describes this really, really well. Her description of her experience getting sober is intense and definitely worth the listen because the visual of it is just unbelievable. I am positive you're going to enjoy this conversation that I had with Rebecca. Please check out her nonprofit, Stable Moments. Without further ado, I give you Rebecca Britt. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I've been listening to some of the later episodes, but also some of the beginning episodes to prepare, and I've been loving it. Awesome. Thank you. Will you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up pretty typical middle-class family in the suburbs of Vermont. I started childhood pretty normal and I was the third child. So I had two older brothers. So some of my, I don't know if like I had a desire to be older because that's just like I was an old soul and that was just me. Or if like I wanted to keep up with my older brothers and they were doing cool things and I was kind of chasing after them. We were Jehovah's Witnesses, which is like a weird thing, but it's 
like worth bringing up just because we didn't celebrate holidays and we were kind of different in that aspect. What's interesting though is my mom started going to AA when I was like 10 or 11. She stopped being a Jehovah's Witness because she was like, this is now like where I'm getting my spirituality fed was AA. And I went to all these AA meetings with her, which to this day has given me like a little bit of like, I don't like AA that much. I think it was great for my mom and I think it's great for a lot of people, but it was just so awkward for me to like sit in those meetings and hear a lot of stories. And I didn't really understand like why my mom wanted to associate with these people that much. Like I felt like she just got such an identity wrapped around AA and the recovery lifestyle. And it's honestly like why I stayed away from the recovery. Like there's just something about my childhood and AA and my mom feeling like once you're in recovery, like that's your identity that I didn't like. How old were you when she started bringing you to meetings? I think 10 or 11. And what was the reason for that, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if she was just like, oh, you can come with me or I need to watch you. Okay. Like my dad, I'm not going to say he wasn't present. Like she was one of those overbearing moms that like just did everything. So like he didn't have an opportunity to like step in and do a lot. But she like tells stories about how like they'd be home on a Saturday and she would load all three of us kids to go grocery shopping. Whereas like now, like if my husband's home, I leave my kids with my husband if I need to go grocery shopping. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... I had like what I think was a pretty normal upbringing, but definitely a mom that was, it's funny when it was, when it's normal for you, it's normal for you. So a couple of things that did happen in my childhood that were like, well, that's really not normal. When I look back, my mom did get in a drunk driving accident with us and we had to get out of the car and hitchhike, which I didn't realize till like later that that's what had happened. And like, holy smokes, once you have kids, you're like, I can't imagine the guilt or shame or whatever I would feel if we had to hitchhike because, of course, we didn't want to get a DUI. So now that I look back... I like, like how it, you say we. <laughs> we didn't want we to, didn't want to get a DUI. The unit could not afford a DUI. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> there was definitely like a dynamic of like a, a strung out mom, like completely not strung out in the way, but she's just like high intensity, feels like she has to do everything, but she's drinking. Yeah. So... As much as I'm like, I don't really know that I noticed that she was drinking, there were things that were happening that wouldn't have happened in a normal household. So when I was 12, my oldest brother was 20 and he had a friend that was 20 and I was raped by this friend. But the rape itself wasn't horribly traumatic. It was odd because I actually felt special by this relationship. He would like leave me notes in my backpack. He would tell me how pretty I was. He would call the house just to talk to me. There was a lot of grooming that went on that made me feel so special. And I was the little girl that wanted to be like 30 when I was six. So the fact that I was 12 and there was this older guy, like I totally romanticized it, thought that we would like end up together. Anyway, when it culminated in sexual assault, I went to school or like went on the bus and told somebody like, oh, I've been talking to this guy. And like, this is what we did. And we're like boyfriend and girlfriend. And this is what girlfriends do. And I was just so I was bragging almost. And so that's when it was like, you know, the teachers found out and he was arrested or like all that whole thing. But the adults in my life were like, this is disgusting. He doesn't really like you. He's a predator. This is perverted. All of these things that I was like, you mean I'm not special? You mean he doesn't like me? And it was very much like, how would you think that this was okay? I mean, just so made me feel so small and so stupid. So this sounds bad, but I think this part of your story is so important. I relate so much to it. And I work with so many teenagers where I always joke, like it's kind of a prerequisite for some sort of substance abuse. If you are a young girl, like this older boyfriend of sorts, people really don't understand that the effect that it has on us when you come to us and you explain to us that we've been assaulted or that this person is disgusting for being attracted to us, what kind of effect that has on us. And I haven't 
ever heard anyone talk about it at such lengths, but I have a reaction to it when I hear it because I experienced that as well. And I did have relationships with much older men and people would say, oh my gosh, they were taking advantage of you. They were, and I'm like, I was participating. This was, you know, like I was a willing participant. While it may legally not be okay, morally not be okay, any of those things, whatever, however, you know, whichever the categories you want to place it in, it is important to acknowledge that for us, we're in a relationship. And so maybe this other person did something that they're not supposed to do and took advantage of the situation. But to call them disgusting for being attracted to us and to diminish our feelings or just not even realize that we had any is really damaging. In fact, it's more damaging than the thing we didn't realize was a problem. Yeah, 100%. And I just think it's like, it is the reaction of everyone. It it plays throughout my story, but that blame the victim, the like wrap this up in a black or white box and let's just call it what makes our brains feel better to digest it. And I, I feel like several times throughout my life, I felt this kind of like people packaging my story in a way that felt like something they could process. Right, right. I also related to the bringing it to school and having people at school find out and the trauma of having your trauma be spread around school and you losing control of it. In in fact, much of my trauma, as I've talked about in the podcast, is related to the reactions of other people when my trauma came out. A thousand times worse than anything that happened was the experience of all these people finding out, everybody having an opinion about it, it being public and just wanting to crawl into a hole and die and disappear. Yeah, 100%. Well, so it was the following year I was a freshman in high school, but I was 13. So I was a young freshman. And there was a teacher there that was 43. That was like, he was a like a perma sub. He was like, didn't need all the credentials, I'm sure to be an actual teacher. But he was like a substitute teacher that was there every single day and covered classrooms. But he had like the cool classrooms. He had like, computer lab or study hall or like they'd bounce him around to things that he didn't have to really teach. I got to know him because he was a cool teacher. He started writing me like notes out of class and and stuff like that. Like I'd walk into one class and it would be, oh, there's an excuse pass. You need to go resolve conflict in the computer lab. Like resolve conflict was what like he always wrote. Anyway, I would go down there. And so he had crossed the line and he, you know, just started by like touching my knee and then kissing me and then feeling me up. And there was like, craziness of him like leaving me in a closet that like later on we found out was a soundproof room in the school. So when I was experiencing this, almost immediately, I was like, oh, he's a predator. He's disgusting. Like I knew from the previous experience, I'm not special, even though he was using all these same words. You're special. Like there's something about you. I had informed him about my previous sexual assault, which you find out that They will prey on you when they think, you know, you won't be believed twice. So he did that. But I, in my mind, was like, this isn't right. I applied everything I knew from the first one. And I was like, I'm going to tell and I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen to another girl because he doesn't believe I'm special. Everything he's saying is BS. He's perverse. Da, 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 da. So he was writing you these notes. Were you telling any of your friends or what was the experience like with him starting this grooming process? Because I don't think everybody knows what a grooming process looks like or is. He was cool. And how he pushed the envelope was like talking about weed or talking about sex and talking about condoms. And we were blowing, I remember me and several other kids were like blowing up condoms into balloons. We would write cuss words on the chalkboard. So it was just this like slow process of, hey, you can get away with more in this classroom. You can, you know, we don't follow the rules here. And maybe even like getting you to do things that you could possibly be in trouble for. So there's things that you like he could maybe hold against you. And he was just very kid-like talking about the parties, talking about getting fucked up. So he felt like one of us. I feel like that's what the grooming process was. But then with the notes and stuff of like excuses to classrooms, it was interfering with my my normal curriculum, like what I was supposed to be doing for that day. And because of the power dynamic or whatever, of course, I can't say like, no, I'm not going to the computer lab to resolve conflict. You know, so it's like you don't know where you're supposed to be. And the other teachers were getting kind of like, why is this guy always calling you out of class? But nobody really looked into it. He had had reports from other teachers that said the teachers made him, he made them feel uncomfortable, like in the mail room, but never like a report possibly against kids. 
what was the closet situation? So he had brought me to this closet where they kept, it was like in a studio type sound room, but it's also where they kept the bottle drive. Like we would do bottle drives to collect cans for money. Mm -hmm. Okay. For the school or whatever. So they would keep these cans in there. So the whole closet smelled like beer and, you know, whatever recycling bin smells like. And he had brought me in there, like pushed me up against the wall, chewed on my bra, like, you know, made out with me. And then he was like, stay here because he thought he had heard something. He left, but he didn't come back for like an hour and a half and I could not leave that closet. And then when he came back, he was like, sorry, I had to like teach my class. And he like tried to start back up with me and I just left out of the classroom. And I honestly, even during this time, like I feel like I went along with a certain amount of things because I felt like if I just tell them he put his hand down my shirt, that's not enough. If I just tell them he touched my leg and invited me over to his house, that's not enough. Like, I felt like sex had to happen. I felt like, you know, something had to happen to be believed. Was this encounter different than the first one in the sense that the first one you were participating in the sense like you had this belief that things were more than they were? Was this different in your mind? Was it categorized different? Yeah, this was... You didn't want to do this. Dude, you're 43. Like, I didn't want it to be this. I wanted you to be a cool teacher. I didn't want to do things sexually with you. And I didn't want to be your girlfriend. But I will say that, like, I did feel very paralyzed in the moment. And I think that that's something in both of my experiences and even in, like, fighting experiences. Like, that's, like, something I do. Like, I freeze more than I fight, which I think is common. But I do know that feeling of feeling like this is wrong, but I'm not like, ew, get away from me and like have that. I'm just kind of like sit there and let you do whatever. It's more normal than people understand. And interestingly, you know, I'm a very outspoken and, you know, aggressive, whatever, whatever you want to call it. In sobriety, I was date raped by what I thought was a completely innocuous guy. Like uh, compared to the guys that I hung out with, I was like, I did not see this coming. And all the things that I thought I would do, sober, aware, like this was one of those things where I wasn't just like, oh, well, whatever. None of those happened. I didn't do those things. Like all, the list of things that you think you're going to do, I did not do them. And at that moment was like, holy shit, this is my personality, all the things, things I've reacted to. And this was my reaction to this scenario, which I would have thought I would have had a totally different reaction to. I think people really don't know what it is that they're going to do until they're in that moment. And I know I felt a lot of shame. I don't know what your experience was, but I know I felt a lot of shame that I didn't have the reaction I not only thought I would have, but I also thought other people would think I would have. Yeah, 100%. And I don't know how much of shame, but even just doubt of like, how much can you say somebody violated you when you didn't actively? I mean, I have gotten that over and over again, even as like a 16 year old employee where a older man was doing things that were inappropriate, like HR says like, well, what did you do to stop him? What did you I'm like, do I need to be groped? And like, do it does it like I'm showing up for a job? You know what I mean? So we are conditioned to think that we shouldn't just be simply allowed to go to school and get an education without having to defend or protect the most intimate parts probably you haven't even explored yet, possibly if you're that young. Right, right. And furthermore, interest, my husband's family, Jehovah's Witness, and I just did an interview with the man who left Jehovah's Witness. And one of the things that comes up a lot about that culture is it's very patriarchal and the man is in charge and he rules the roost. And that's that's the deal. I think that when you grow up in a culture like that as a woman, as a young girl, you also feel like there's even more emphasis on there has to be a real reason to go against the male, particularly an older male, like an elder, if you will. And, and I think that some of these kind of subconscious messages probably come through for many of us and are reflected in our behavior when we're under attack. Yeah. And what's coming up for me too, which I hate to admit this, but I think with the first situation and the second, I have like this desire to be liked. And 
part of what they liked about me was that I was cool and risky. So like I would talk about smoking weed and I would talk about like partying and all this cool stuff. So then when they like make this move, are you going to be like, actually, I'm prude. Actually, this is where I draw the line. You want to like, but you still think I'm cool, right? Like it is your um, entry to the game of acceptance. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. It's a really great point because it's true. It's like, you know, you don't want someone to call your bluff and you don't want that to be what they think of you. And also, I don't, I don't know about your experience, but it sounds crazy. But when I was a freshman in high school, there were a lot of people that I ended up having sex with that I just didn't know how to say no and get out of it. And it was just easier. It was just easier to go along. Now thinking about it, I'm like, was it easier? But I really didn't know how to say no. I wasn't taught that. And I don't think I thought that if you went to their house or if you brought it to a certain level, I don't think I knew or believed that you were able to stop things once they had gone to a certain level. I just didn't know that. And so my assumption was like, okay, well, I let this get this far. I, you know, I've already, this basically it's a done deal. Yeah, you owe it. And I went as far as to be like, after these two experiences, I was like, oh, I know what you all want now. I know what makes me valuable. So I'll give you that in exchange for what, what whatever, acceptance or you liking me or being valuable, like whatever. So I was like right out in front, like I had figured it out. I just have to sleep with you. I mean, when you have low self-esteem, which I did, I had a big ego with low self-esteem, which is a brilliant combination. And when you have to find self-esteem from other people, right? Self-esteem is ultimately this thing that makes you want to continue. Self-esteem is the thing that makes you feel valuable and worth doing anything, worth doing all the mundane shit, all the like, what do I have to do? Why does it any of it matter? You Where have to do have I belong in the world. Exactly. Why am I even here? Why am I doing this? Why am I participating? You have to have some sort of sense of self-worth. It's not about like being successful. It's about being on the planet. I, I need some sense of self-worth. So if you're getting that, which I was, and it sounds like you were, from the opposite sex who are much older and they know without a shadow of a doubt that you need that from them. If you're getting that from them, there is this exchange, right? And we are participating in the exchange. It's just that it's an unequal exchange, but we're not aware of that at first. And we certainly don't have the skills to get out of it. And we need what they're giving us, right? Because we don't know how to get that. Our parents are not giving us the self-esteem of these people. So where else are we going to get it? And our peers don't see us in this way, we think. So it becomes the situation where we rely on these people who are preying on our vulnerability and our need for our self-esteem. And then what happens, right? And then we're told by everybody else that we're disgusting for needing that. And it becomes a perfect opportunity for more predators and lots of a behavior that leads to more trauma and, you know, substance abuse. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, it started really young. Like I've listened to your first episode where you talked about like this void in that a lot of your, the people that you, that come on the podcast talk about like this void. I don't think I had a void, but I think I came here like I'm here, ta-da, like this big soul, this big, bright, this like exciting, like I was so excited to experience earth. I was told that you're inappropriate, tone it down. Like I was really bent and stapled and condensed down to something that was such a far cry from what I knew me to be that I think that I always knew as people told me that I wasn't good in whatever way that I was like, oh, I'm so good. But the resistance I felt from everybody going like that doesn't belong here was a desire to fit in. So the only way that you fit in then is like, how do I dim my light so that I'm not too bright for everyone? And that's really where using, I think for me and escaping reality came. So then when the injustices happen, you know, the bigger traumas happen, you've already learned that you're not good enough. Then somebody comes along and says, I like your bright light. You just have to sleep with me to, you know, and so it's this like roller coaster of like, maybe I'm valuable. And then that's all squished. Like, nope, you weren't valuable. You're, and so it's really a mind fuck just like to, to ride those waves. And with the teacher situation, because I was like, okay, I'm going to, tell on him. I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen. Did you ultimately have sex with him? No. So it got to a point where I think he had brought me to like a band room and he had put his hands down my pants and I did pull his hands out of my pants. 
And then he did it again. Oh, I'll take it slow with you. Don't worry. Oh, and he had said that he was going to come to, he asked me what stable my horse was at. And I, I rode horses. He said, I'm going to come to your stable. And I went back to math class after that. And I sat there kind of shaking. And I remember thinking, no, you're not. You're not coming to my stable. Like, cause my horses was like the one thing that like was just safe. So I left that math class and told guidance counselor because I just felt like I was done. I was done. And really for the last few days that I had been holding on to this, like I was holding on to it to let it be big enough in my mind that somebody would believe me. So I just got to an emotional point of like, okay, I'm just going to tell them what it is. Like, it's not going to go any further than this. I had also kept like a very detailed journal of every day because I knew that like I would want the details down. This was a detail later that they his attorney used to show like nobody would keep a detailed journal. And like, obviously she made it up because it's like a story, like who would keep a journal of every day? Like she was making a case. And the truth is I was making a fucking case, but it was a true honest case. Like, and I had been shown before that you need to make a case. So anyway, I did tell, and you know, the, I did the wrong thing. I didn't go to the police. I went to the school. The school tried to cover it up. Like all of these things that you don't think of and you think, when something like this happens, people will support you. But it ended up being a three-year trial. So it was just like depositions. And I remember reading my deposition at my Dunkin' Donuts job. And it was like such a huge stack. And I was reading a deposition that I had already done so that I could prepare for trial because you need to remember what the fuck you said three years ago. And I left the deposition at my job. And my boss called me and was like, are you like, you know, getting this teacher fired? Did it it was amazing how many people were like, I think she liked him. I mean, just the excuses on his side or to make it pretty, like I was a slutty, troubled student. So walk me through the cover up. What did the school do to try to cover it up? You know, they make sure that it doesn't get leaked to media. They let him know, hey, we're going to suspend you with pay while we figure this out. Whereas I was told later by the police that the police would have come and arrested him at school. He would have had no time to get his story straight or even clean up. There were like items like I had like a hall pass with his number on the back of it that he had given me. You know, there were things that we had given back and forth. The police said that they would have had me call him at that number and be like, I really like what we've been doing. Can we meet again? Like there were just things that the police would have done. But instead, because the school was like, hey, you can go home and the police weren't notified for three days or whatever. It just wasn't the right way to do things. And so how soon after so you tell the school, school tries to cover it up, then police find out what's happening at school while this is unfolding. I don't remember how quick it took them to send me to private school, but my public school paid for me to go to private school. Wow. Yeah. They wanted the problem gone. And even though I like failed out of private school and had to return, when I brought it up one time, the principal like heard me in the hallway and was like, we don't talk about that here. And I was like, well, it fucking happened here. Like, you know, I was just like, I was done with injustice. And it was a three-year trial where people were, kids were mad at me for getting this teacher fired. I mean, he was a cool teacher. I even had like my best friend's parents, like maybe we shouldn't hang out with her. It was just one of those like, Oh my God. We'd rather be away from the heat type yeah. of things. My f best friend had a police come interview her because I had told her about it while it was happening. So they needed proof of that. So I can just see parents being like, we don't want to be involved in this. But for me, it was like complete isolation. And when did the deposition start? So you had to get an attorney? Well, it was the state's attorney. Oh, it's the state's. Okay. Yeah. So the, you know, the state was pressing charges, but I don't know, like over the last, next three years, it was several depositions, one from his attorney, which his church paid for his defense. It was just a lot. What did your parents say? So my mom, my mom liked him. She worked at the in school. She worked at the school. So she was like a co-worker-ish. She worked in the cafeteria. But she liked him and thought he was a nice guy. But she was like, oh, no. And he even said things to me like, your mom's hot. Like, I have to choose between you and your mom. There was weirdness. So she was surprised. My dad in all of these, my dad is passive. And I swear I get a lot of my low self-esteem from not having a father that was like, you are valuable. This doesn't happen to my daughter type of thing. 
just even with the first one, he called that guy and was like, hey, you know, have you been doing stuff with my daughter? And the guy said, yeah. And my dad's like, okay, well, I think that in court, we'll try to get therapy for you. You know, it's just like, it's always just like, there's a reason for people's behaviors. Whereas I really wanted like, no, this isn't okay. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. I relate to that. <laughs> yep. There was a situation where I was kidnapped when I was a teenager when I was using. And when I got back, everybody was so focused on me and under my parents were so focused on me. And understandably, like as a parent, I get it. But I wanted them to be irate and focused on these people and like getting, you know, revenge and like, how dare they and any of that. And it really was not about that. It had a very big effect on me. It was like the focus had nothing to do with being protective of what had happened. It was like, let's move on from here. How do we go? Like, And I, I get it now as a parent, but as a kid, all I wanted was that to like feel that protectiveness. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Ashley here. As many of you know, I got sober at 19 after going to many treatment centers. And years later, when my aunt passed away as a result of her addiction, my father and I and our business partner, Ian Crabb, started a telehealth company in 2010 called Lion Rock Recovery. We started with a PowerPoint and a dream, hoping to help people overcome barriers to treatment like affordability, accessibility, and privacy, which we were able to create in this program that we started. Today, Lion Rock Recovery, our little PowerPoint, treats people all over the world. We have over 200 clinicians, and it's an amazing program. We have an intensive outpatient program that has so many different time tracks to fit into people's schedules and specialties like professionals group, LGBTQIA, trauma, and many, many more. We are able to help people anywhere in the world with any schedule, and all of it can be done privately. This is our dream come true, and Lion Rock Recovery is available to any of you who have family members who are struggling, or if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody, our admissions team is there around the clock for a free phone call, also a live chat on the website. There's so much there that we've worked so hard to bring to you. Please check it out, lionrockrecovery.com, or you can call the 800 number, 800-258-6550. Thank you so much. So when you were going through this deposition and having to, your boss reads it at work because you left the deposition there, did your boss get upset with you? Like, why are you doing this to this guy or what, what happened there? No, I just think that like, it's an example of, uh something another a 15 or 16 year old shouldn't have to be dealing with. I was obviously stressed out. And then I left something very private around. And it's just like, I was already using at this point, I started dating a 21 year old when I was 14. After this parents let him move in. He was a complete loser. <laughs> oh my God, we have like, we have <laughs> such a similar story. I'm tripping out. My boyfriend moved in as well. My parents like, cause otherwise I would not come home. And so it's just, it's just interesting to me. Like these guys, I'm like, what do we have a sign on our head? Like they just know, they know. Well, yeah. And again, like, what was my dad thinking? A 21 year old that is all tattooed. He looked like a friggin' skinhead. Like it wasn't like he was like, had some redeeming like, oh, maybe there was something. And my dad even said like, before I start dropping you, because before he moved in with us, it was an apartment. The guy was in an apartment with five other dudes that were 21. And my dad was like, before I just drop my 14 year old daughter off at this apartment, I need to meet this guy. Okay. My dad brings him to McDonald's and he like fails every, like there, I'm wondering at what part of the interview my dad was like, you've passed, but I got dropped off there over and over and over again. So like, you know, I was 14. I, I remember these guys would like blow blow darts at my butt, like just like weird, stupid shit that college age guys would do. But I shouldn't have been in the mix. And of course, there was drugs there. And I just wanted to be cool at this point. I also wanted to check out parents obviously didn't care. And then when he was going to be homeless, like he was allowed to move in. But again, it was well, you know, he deserves a chance he did, did it. And it was like, you could actually make a difference in my life. Like I'm 14. Why is he getting prioritized before me? And of course, I'm selling it to them. I want him right. to move in. Right, right. 
But like, I just can't imagine if my four-year-old, like my kid now wanted to move in his 21-year-old girlfriend at 14. No. So anyway, that's like that boyfriend shot me up for my first time. You know, we did crack and there's everything, whatever was around, like that was fine. Well, he knew a guy that was getting out of federal prison that was 30 and that guy got out of federal prison and I met that guy and that was my next relationship. So my parents let this 30 year old straight out of federal prison. They heard, they saw me writing letters to him as he was getting out, him move in, you know, we were, we used together. So that all went down. And then I went to trial at some point during this. And it's so weird because they're like, we want to like make you wear pig tails and make you look young again, you know, like so that you're this on the stand. And on the stand, it really was like, I don't know if you remember, but in high school, there's like A A days and B days or like block days or different, you know, whatever. They are like, during this period, or was this an A day or a B day? There were so many things they were trying to get me on, like the smallest discrepancies, things that you wouldn't remember about your life three years prior. And I was really having to like sort through my deposition to see, like, did I say it was an A day? Did I say it was 1015? It was like a lot of that. And he had a really good attorney. But anyway, at the end of the day, like he got not guilty. And I remember the biggest sucker punch of like, I knew that it was really hard to be isolated. I knew that the depositions were a pain in the ass. Actually, I didn't know that they were going to be, but I knew like all of this was such a heavy burden. But I was like, in the light of being just and like doing the right thing, it is worth it. I'll carry this torch because I felt like it was all for a reason. And then when he got not guilty, I was like, what was all of that for? I felt like it was like God telling me like, okay, you know that this isn't right. You're going to speak up. And then I felt like I carried that torch and it was just like it was all for nothing. Like everybody hating me was all for nothing. And I even wrote a blog post once on like, think before you report sexual assault, because we tell women report, 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 but we do not focus on creating a culture or a society that is supportive of reporting. And I don't know, like if I don't have a daughter, like I have boys, thank God, but I don't know, like I would think long and hard before we went down that road again. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense to me that you would continue down that path and want to check out. Mm -hmm. The injustice of really wanting to do the right thing. Yeah. So you're just like, okay, you know, there is definitely a part of you that goes like, maybe it's fucking true. Like, guess what? You're not valuable. You know, maybe it's true. And the odd thing, and maybe it's not odd, like I think that there's a lot of addicts that are like this, but I always had my like do good side of me that, you know, as much as I had given in and I had a very bright, like fuck it side of me that was just doing whatever. And really to me, I think it was screaming loud. You know, I had needles in my parents' home. My dad found my needles at 17 and just said, oh, well, how could we get you a rightful prescription to this? So it's not illegal. Yeah. You know, just I was screaming out for as loud as I knew that I possibly could for somebody to say, this isn't okay and you're worth more than this. But I also, you know, turned it around and got on a roll in my last couple years of, co- of high school and went to college. And it's like, I was literally like puking down my sweatshirt in biology class because I had just done heroin in the bathroom or like taken a Coke shot and turned around and like taught my other classrooms, like why the synapses in the brain on the lesson or because I was just like, oh, I can figure out this life thing. However, I need to like, it was just a very Frankenstein way of me trying to like modge podge the pieces of me together. Yeah, I relate to that so much. I got thrown out of high school, uh, one of my high school's the highest GPA in the school. I was doing so well, all, you know, playing sports on it, whatever. But I was always hoping that all the things that I was doing academically and keeping that all put together would cause people, which it did, to struggle with the dichotomy of what I was also doing. And I found that my family had a real, until they didn't, but had a hard time making sense of a kid who did well in school, who was also doing drugs. And they wanted, they did not react as strongly to the behaviors that I think other people would have reacted to had I been doing badly in school. It wasn't until that shit started to fall off and legal and like till the wheels fell off when I think it was so much easier to be like, this whole thing is a problem. Right, right, right. I feel like I was going to people saying I have a problem and they're like, you don't, 
you know, you're good. You've got an apartment, a car, you're a social worker, you know, you're okay. We all do a little something to keep ourselves afloat. Right, right. <laughs> I'm like, right, hey. right. Yeah. Tell me about being a social worker. Yeah. So I went to school just to college because I thought I should. And I decided to, I wanted to go into social work because I really just felt like the injustices that I felt I could relate to. I just felt like I had a deep sense of empathy. And so I wanted to be a social worker. I wanted to help people like me. I also wanted to be like a parole officer or probation officer because I love accountability. And I had seen... I had oh my seen, gosh. I don't even see now. I'm not sure what to make of that either. That's amazing. I love accountability. I wanted to be a parole officer. Okay. All right. Well, I had seen one, I'd seen the justice system not work, but I also had seen a lot of these people, like even my boyfriend's mom at one point, like she kept passing drug court by packing piss and like doing all these things. And I just felt like I grew up in Vermont too, super liberal. So like I wanted to sanction people that weren't trying and that were trying to beat the system. And I wanted to reward people that were really trying. So I felt like a probation officer that could see through bullshit or at least wouldn't pretend with people that were messing their lives up, like that could be good for me. But by the time I graduated, we were in a recession and the only job, it was 2010, the only job that was hiring was one that dealt with kids that had been adopted out of state's custody. And these were parents that had adopted the kids from foster care. And then they were saying like, this kids super messed up. I don't want to deal with them. Like, can we give the kid back? And I was a post-adoption case manager. And I basically was assigned to them to show them therapeutic parenting techniques and certain education, how to keep the kid in the home. And like, what does early developmental trauma do? How does it affect the brain? How can we respond to it? How not to be punitive? Like all of these things. I ended up learning so much about trauma and complex trauma over time. But the whole time I was using and it got to a point where I was like, you know, doing a little heroin before this IEP meeting where I'm like advocating for a kid to have services or doing. And I started, some of the parents started to get nervous for me. Like she just seems like she's out of it. She seems like she's kind of falling asleep. I already knew that like the gig was coming to a close, but several times throughout my job, I had taken PTO time and checked myself into rehab. I tried everything. Nobody in my life was like, you need to get help. I've always gotten like, pretty sure you've got this, you know? And so it leaves you like, okay, I guess I have to figure this out on my own. But I always knew I was made for more. I never, ever thought, I guess I'm just going to be like a dope addict. I never thought it would be okay to like become homeless or whatever. I had my like barriers. So like when I sold my laptop, I knew like, you're fucked, dude. Like this is where it starts. Or when I took out my first cash advance, on a credit card, it was like my last cash advance because it was like, there's nowhere, there's not much farther to go. And we know how this ends. But so I tried like going to rehab, but I just came back to being by myself. And yeah, I had 10 days clean or whatever, but like life's was fucking boring. So you just, I like would look around at people and they were like, it's rainy day and they're just like driving their cars and they're like getting their snotty nosed kids. And I'm like, who wants to do this shit sober? I, I just like, Ew, so much more fun if you have to like navigate being high. And honestly, being high wasn't even fun, but at least you're like, oh shit, I'm up, I'm coming down. And there's like stuff to like think of your, to occupy your mind. So much of me using was just, what am I getting? How much do I need to sell to keep up my habit? When do I need to meet this guy? When do I need to meet that guy? Like I kept a full-time job while I managed this whole thing. It's why I can manage four businesses today because it's just, you know, you can, when I could handle that. Like, it's amazing what you can do when you take all of the energy you put into yep. to that, you know? Yep. What did it look like when you finally got yourself off of the heroin? So I moved to, my dad had moved to Atlanta and I decided to move as well. And I just was going to bring enough heroin to get me through the drive. And then I was going to come off it and not know anything. And I recruited a friend that was also on heroin that was also a social worker, you know, in a different county. But I was like, do you want to get off this shit? Let's move to Atlanta together. She was like, okay, whatever. So my dad didn't know that I was coming to get off heroin. He just thought I was wanting a new life. And your parents, your parents had... Oh, and they had, they had divorced within the six months before he moved to Atlanta. So I followed him down there basically. And, but the addict of me got a hold of me. So I was like, I, I'm freaking out. I'm withdrawing. I'm going to try to get heroin off the black market. And I like went on a forum, whatever, and tried to find some in Atlanta. And of course it was like this little white naive girl from Vermont that was like, Hey guys, I've got $200. If somebody could just sell me some, you know, and it was like within seconds, people were like, yeah, come meet me here. I have it. I went down and tried to get 
the drugs. And I literally like pulled into a parking spot and got a text that was like, hey, can you actually meet us across the road? So I was like, okay, whatever. Put it in reverse, went to back up and I hit another car that was like in the parking lot. So I'm like, fuck, I text the guy back and I'm like, hey, I don't want you to think I'm like blowing up your spot, but the cops are going to come because I just got in an accident. I don't want you to think that like I called them to like set you up. I still want the drugs, but like I have to deal with this accident. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. Like Atlanta PD won't be there for 30 minutes. We can do the drug deal. So he like comes over, gets in the back of my car while there's like a guy that's a victim of a car accident standing there. Like we do this drug deal. And I swear, I looked in the backseat at this guy and he had, it was like when you've seen evil, like I could just tell that I was like being visited by the devil in that moment. Like his blacks of his eyes are just all black. And he like sold me something that didn't look anything like I'd ever done before. But my hope was really high that like, at least this will have something in it that will make me feel a little bit better because I was already sweating and stuff. So I get the drugs. I go into the coffee shop that we had pulled into. I asked them for the key for the bathroom. My friend and I go in the bathroom. We like go to shoot our drugs. I shoot mine first. And like immediately, like this cold feeling from the top of my head all the way through, like it felt like ice just went through all of my veins. And then I started to feel like just really not okay. And I told my friend, I was like, don't shoot that. Like it's poison. It's not good. And I opened the door and like just crawled to the friggin' sidewalk. And it was just like, oh, and pain, whatever. And the cops show up for the accident. And they're like, did she like, is she saying her neck hurts from the accident? Small fender bender, <laughs> you know, like, and I'm literally like, my intestines are just starting to like empty. Like, I'm just like puking. I'm like, just get me an ambulance. I was like, I shot something. Da -da. Like I told them, I was like, I'm dying. I have no clue what I did to this day. It was either a Suboxone, like a uh, antagonist that like, wiped me clean immediately or it was fucking like rat poison i i couldn't tell you but it was bad i go to the hospital but i'm arrested at the same time so i go to like the shitty part of the hospital where pieces of shit go like that was very obvious and they like had me handcuffed to my bed and i went to jail the whole time i was sitting in jail it was a 24-hour booking process what did you go to jail for possession so they you had it on you yeah, I still had the bag. Oh, I was like, whatever this is, test it later after I'm dead. I was very much like, I've died. There was no like save myself at this point, which was all by design. Like, I really feel like this whole was like a divine intervention, but it was such a long time like to get through booking. And like, of course, I had never been to jail, but like, it was the best jail to go to, to never want to go back. I'll oh, tell you that. God, and, like, and you had just come from Vermont. Holy shit. Oh my gosh. I told them, I was like, can't you write me a citation? I had gotten DUIs. I had gotten possession charges. You get a citation and you go to your little fireside house and you go to your court date later. You know, you don't, they're like, no, you go to jail for felonies, ma'am. And like I was, it was a felony and I was seen as a flight risk because I just moved there. So I had to check in three days a week. I, I was like seen as like the worst case scenario. But while I was like, you know, I was in this cell with these chicks that like wanted like bit her boyfriend's ear off. I was like, why don't you just do drugs like normal people? I was like having to go to the bathroom and there's one toilet and they're like, don't fucking disrespect this stall. We'll like beat your ass. And I was like, okay, like I don't, it's like the floor or the toilet. I don't know what to do. I remember finally getting up to like my pod. There was no cells left. So they have to give you like a canoe so that you can like sleep in a canoe in the middle of the pod where none of the lights ever go out. I remember for years prior to getting off of heroin, thinking of the perfect conditions for detox. You know, you dream of like, I would just need a hot tub and a masseuse and I would need this and that. And like, you think of all the ways of how detox could be perfect. And then you sit with your face smushed to like prison floor and you're like, or, or this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is perfect. It is perfect. Cause that shit will, that is seared into your brain. I mean, to go from where you were from to Atlanta jailhouse, that's pretty good. And it's like, I still can smell the shower. I still, but the whole time I sat there looking at like the brick wall and like, thanking God, I was like, thank you. You know, that like deep surrender that like uncle is what I felt. I felt like I was like, okay, like uncle, like you've got me. I got it. I got it. <laughs> what, what happened? I, got, yeah, I bet you got it. <laughs> what happened when you got out of Atlanta County Jail? So it's crazy. Just the small things like you should know somebody's phone number. Like I didn't know any phone numbers. I didn't have my cell phone, like just little things like that to even be able to call for a ride. But anyway, my brother came and picked me up. 
after I like sat outside for six hours in the blistering sun, like my clothes were biohazard bag. So they had to give me other prisoners like lost and found clothes. So I had like basketball shorts that went down to my ankles and like a white tee that went down to my knees, dragging my little biohazard bag. And I'm like, I'm just waiting for my brother. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if I thought going into prison, jail was like the lowest. So I waited, my brother picked me up and I detoxed. Like I had never let myself really get to that or maybe it was just the sickness of whatever I'd shot, but that deep in detox, there wasn't even, I, I couldn't have found a vein. You could have handed me dope and I would have been like, Ugh. that was actually good getting to the point of like the total like worst flu you've ever had. And just letting my body like go through whatever it needed to go through. I remember I still had like court dates and stuff. So my dad would like put me in the back seat and I'd lay back there. He'd go to the grocery store and I'd watch other people like picking up their groceries. And I'm like, how do they lift those bags? Like you just don't remember like the strength you had, you don't like so much of it is surreal when you're that weak. And so I went through the court process. Like I got pretrial intervention. Of course, I got like first offenders. Like I got all the leniency things and I did what I needed to do. And I was scared. So I didn't fucking try to find drugs ever again. I got a job as a server and started looking for gainful employment down there. But the big thing that I did was I felt like I could really reinvent myself. So I was like, I'm in Atlanta. I'm off of drugs. Like, who do I want to be? I also like couldn't get a typical social worker job because of the pending charges or whatever. So I was just like, who do I want to be? So I still got a job that wasn't like in the fertility world that like wasn't my dream job. But I started volunteering at a local horse rescue. And I asked them, can I like bring foster or adopted kids here? Because I've always had this thought for this program. And they were like, sure. And so I started meeting with foster adopted kids and teaching them just how to brush horses and be with horses. And I realized like, wow, me doing this individually, like with 12 different kids, it's too much. So then I started training community mentors in complex trauma and interventions, but really just how to be a good mentor and started matching up mentors with kids. It was like really being able to reinvent myself and start going after things that didn't seem possible before when I was using. Once I had the mentors, I realized like all of the problems of having mentors meet with kids with trauma and horses and the program needed a lot more structure. So I came up with plans of care and color coded activities and life skill categories that the kids were developing and really had to put a lot of structure around this program and was able to open my own nonprofit that we called Stable Moments and we moved to our own facility. So I was able to quit my full-time job and start doing that. But that program grew and some people in the therapeutic horse industry wanted that program model. So I wrote a book and developed the program. And now people get certified in that model. And I serve kids with stable moments across the US and in a couple international locations. So it was literally like one foot in front of the other toward maybe because when I was trying to get clean, I had a prayer. Like, I don't know, I just said, while I was getting clean, like, or not even while I was getting clean, before I was getting clean, I've lost control. I've tried to freaking get clean several times. I can't do it. And I'd literally be mixing up my drugs and shooting them and saying, God, like, if you want to take this away from me, I'm here for it, but I can't do it on my own. So I felt like going to jail was how he answered that. But I also felt that my prayer was like, if you release me from this, I promise I will do good with my life. And I feel like since he like has laughed at that and been like, you don't just get delivered from like you get delivered to this huge thing, like, but. When you're in the beginning of it, you feel so much like you just want to get delivered. You feel like sobriety is if you could just get that. Yep. And then you start putting days and time together and one and you look back and you're like, holy shit, it's been like kind of some time and I've done some things and people now people can't imagine me as anything but this. And, you know, and then you see yourself through the eyes of your children and start to realize, oh, oh wow, like this, now the stakes are higher and now people care. And, you know, I, ha I it is, this is really important. Sobriety takes on a whole new meaning after you become a role model for other people and your children. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, I've developed a program, Transcend 91, which is a practical guide for your first 91 days of recovery. And 
I do think that people need the practical steps of like how to make it through those first 91 days. And for me, I kept failing when I was left to my own devices. And I feel like my brother recently relapsed on crack. And this is really what spurred me to to do this was because my dad was trying to help him. And I was like, you can't leave him alone. When the meetings are done, when, you know, rehab's over, when the outpatient treatment program, you go home, like, like all we know to do is use. So I was like, it's kind of like a program for idle hands so that you can understand what to do. You can rely on yourself, but the program's made for like, made for more and discovering yourself because I feel like fulfillment is such a critical, essential piece to sustained recovery. And if you're just focused, I know that it's hard to not just be focused on getting clean and why you want to get clean and your triggers and all of those things. But like, it's so much more than that. And if you can find the things that bring you purpose and value and fulfillment, I do think that you have a lot better chances. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Where did you publish Transcend 91? I wrote, I just self- published the book, but it's free. So I just, it's an ebook that anybody can download. It has six different domains so that you can, I want it when I first did it, I was like, oh, I could do day one, day two, day three for your first 91 days. But I was like, day two looks different for everybody. Day 14 looks different for everybody. So instead there's six different domains and you do a self-assessment, you figure out what domain you're in every day, and then you do any exercise that's within that domain. And you could go back and forth like one time you need a distract and the other time you're in discover another time you're in defy like you can because that's how recovery is right you might be feeling great in the morning and then you really need to distract yourself in the afternoon so it's kind of what do i do with my hands yes yes <laughs> like where can people find that guide that ebook yeah the easiest way is transcend91.com if you want to go right to the book, it's transcend91.com slash book, but transcend91.com. And then if people want more information about Stable Moments. Yeah, you can go to stablemoments.com. If there happens to be any of your listeners that are nonprofits, I, I'm also a nonprofit consultant, and that is forpurposelive.com. I have been able to use all of my experiences to, like, I think I was like led here to be a teacher of some, you know, cause I'm like, which one of these businesses is going to be the business? And then I had to like realize, like, maybe it's just you just share, you're a sharer. So I do think that it's so important. And this is why like podcasts, like I love that podcasts have anybody can make one because it is through experience that other people can learn, other people can relate and other people don't feel so isolated. Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. I related so much and love what you're doing and the path that you've taken. So I really, really appreciate you getting the message out and we will put everything in the show notes for people who want more information. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for hosting this. Man, I related to her. Peas in a pod, beans in a biscuit. That's the no expression. Beans in a biscuit. Beans in a biscuit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I very much related. I, I was kind of shocked. Like, oh, okay, we got we got a lot. It's hard mm -hmm. for me not to place myself in like you know her mom's an AA. Obviously, it sounded like her mom had a little bit of a different different mm -hmm. situation, but it's interesting and nerve wracking to hear about how AA, the mother being an AA, you know, and all these mm -hmm. different stories affects the kids. It makes me wonder what my kids will, what their experiences. I mean, my kids, it's like I go mommy's meeting, they're sober meetings. That's what they say. Sober meetings. When we do, we do either a gratitude mm -hmm. list or a prayer at night before bed as a family. You know, I always say like grateful for my sobriety. So they know. But I, I don't think they there's not like a full understanding of AA. But what's interesting, and I've heard this shared, there's a freaking phenomenal speaker who I who's a 12 step speaker. His name is he actually passed away. His name is Scott Redman. And you can find his tapes on. I mean, he's just, he's he's like the funniest. He talks about his children and them having the support of the other parents and the other people from AA who came around when they were having a really disorganized, crazy, discombobulated life. I think it's really about like what it represents to you. And in her case, in Rebecca's case, mom was bringing around these kind of nefarious types. My children, most of our my friends are sober. And so my children have this community that they know all the moms and dads and, <laughs> and all the kids. I think I've said this before. I've been at barbecues where all our kids are together and all of us are 
married each other and were like, you know, it's like all of us with the bad gene. And then we all decided to get in a group and procreate. We're staring at our kids playing going, oh, I hope it doesn't happen. Like, oh, God, that's good. This is really good. We're really good at this. Really good at this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think it's the thing, you know, it's like it's just whenever there's a label, sometimes it's easy to then extrapolate right it's like the same thing where if you had religious people that came over to your house and then they were shitty in some way like now i can just extrapolate that out and say well everybody in that religion is whatever where it's not really true but it's easier it's just you know it's part of our categorizing as human beings so i understand where it comes from for sure but makes total sense yeah and if you're how you relate to that parent if you dislike that parent and that's a big part of what they do or but yeah I, I, i can't help but think about that as it relates to what experience. And I try to be very thoughtful about how I represent that community because I do want whatever, whatever my kids, I don't, you know, I want every option to be on the table. You know, I also think that there is an important piece of this story, which is just heartbreaking and true. I have experienced this, which is the ramifications of reporting sexual assault and what it feels like as it feels like as the young woman who's been in relationship with the older man and what people say and how that feels even now even as even as a grown woman and as much as i understand the dysfunction of the relationships that i was in when i was 14 and 15 in a relationship with a 27 year old i understand i get it i'm aware i'm I loved that man and I had a relationship, you know, like there was a relationship with him and whether or not he was completely, I mean, not whether or not he was completely dysfunctional, all all the things, it didn't change the fact that as a 15 year old girl, I loved him and had a relationship with him. It just means that he was a, a really sick person. She brought this light on this whole other piece that I've never been able to put words to of our experience when the world is like, he's so disgusting. He's da da da. How could he be attracted to you? You were about like, I've never been able to bring words to that. And I felt very seen. And I was really grateful that she put words, she put an experience to that because it is, it's like two things are true at the same time. Both things are, you know, both things are true. Yeah. I think it's a less, I mean, it's just something that you wouldn't even think about, but I think it's something to consider in how you handle somebody who comes forward in that way is to just realize like as wrong as we can know as that it is from the outside, there's still an opportunity to like protect the victim in this instance to understand like the messaging we are telling them, right? Like about what relationship is and and that of course people will want them and of course people want to be in relationship with them and it's understandable that people would, but it, in this case, this is not right what's happening here. You're not diminishing the experience of that young girl feeling like she was opting in. Having a romantic and physical relationship with them that she opted like there are pieces of that that are very confusing and i again it comes back to you're totally right like we can say from the perspective of what we know as adults and the bigger view the dysfunction of that but it is really important to be gentle around that topic from her perspective because part of the reason that there are limits around consent and sexual relationships between ages is that there's brain development, there's power dynamics, there's all these things. So when it does happen, we have to acknowledge that that creates confusion. And that confusion also about by reporting that the world is just going to support you. And what happens, I think that there's lack of understanding about Okay, I have I come from the perspective of having worked in in the criminal courts, right? I've worked in family court and I've worked at public defender's office. What the system is based on is this idea that everybody gets a defense. And that's the ideal. We create this ideal, right, in our society. What happens is that everybody gets a defense and they get the opportunity to present that defense and he gets to build a case against her. Unfortunately, this is not an uncommon story, but I can't imagine to like feel like even that she'd done everything right, like she's taking notes and like that's used against her where it's like, 
I have experience with this already. Unfortunately, I already have had to live something like this before. And so now I'm trying to do this thing to like make it airtight and protect myself and come forward and tell about what's happening. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. And she still paid all the price for it. And she still had people talking about her at school. And it's heartbreaking. It is. It is. And I've had the experience of the whole school finding out when I was nine and I came out about my abuse, the whole school, it's a long story, but the, the whole school ended up finding out small private school and man, it is brutal. It is brutal. And that person wasn't even in this, you know, like they weren't there. It is a brutal experience. And I think it's a very, in order to survive that experience, we, you definitely learn to dissociate. I think that it's just required. And I, I heard a lot of that in her story. I, I just felt for her, you know, I just felt like Every way, every direction she turned, it was like everybody dropped the ball. And made it doubly as impressive that she dedicated her life, even when she was still in the thick of it and still like clearly not healed and clearly like using a lot of things to cope. She's still trying to help other people who find justice that she couldn't find for herself. It's an impressive and amazing thing that she's like, okay, yeah, I didn't get it for me, but let me see if I can be a part of getting it for other people. Like that's really inspiring to me. I Well, I'm just totally blown away by what Rebecca's doing and stable moments, stable moments. I also love the transcend 91, the program, the step-by-step program for what to do when you get sober and, and the practical guide. I think it's fantastic. And I love that she is going into this and she's gotten, you know, what you do an ebook to the first 91 days in recovery that includes a workbook, exercises, self-paced course. Love that. For everybody listening right now, we are rooting for you this week. I hope it's a, a great week and you find some a nice peaceful moment somewhere in there. How about that? <laughs> wow. It sounded so, you know, not weird and not sincere, but I actually, I do mean it. It's just more of my sort of jittery coffee brain. That's what that is. Mm -mm. So just make sure you hear it for what it is. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with this week? Yes. I want to give a shout out to Dr. 13 at D at dollar sign, dollar sign, who left us a review on Apple Podcasts under So Grateful. I'm going to read it real quick. So Grateful. I happened upon this podcast a year ago in search of help on how to navigate and support my son who is just about to complete 30 days of inpatient recovery. I was desperate. I knew he wasn't ready to come home. I clicked on the courage to change and listened. At the end of the show, Ashley says, reach out to me. I will answer. Here's my email. I thought to myself, Yeah, right. But like I said, I was desperate. I sent her an email and within the hour she had responded. I was shocked. I've been listening ever since. I've learned so much about addiction from the many stories and conversations. It has helped me navigate through all the chaos so I can better support and help my son. It has given me a better understanding of my son and myself. Ashley has been a true light in my life. I am forever grateful for the podcast and her caring heart. I often end these with asking for reviews on Apple Podcasts. I really, really appreciate that you left a review and took the time. It means a lot. And I do answer my emails. I will respond. I do offer help. And I am grateful to each and every one of you who listened to this podcast. Thank you so, so much. We so, so appreciate it. You can reach us at podcast at lionrot.life. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.